Welcome back to Takes by the Lake. I'm your host, Doug Maurice. Two great guests this week, Dan Whalen, former quarterback at Case Western. He's been on Takes by the Lake before. He's a tremendous analyzer of the quarterback position. We break down Baker Mayfield and what's going on with him. And then our friend Ellis Williams, our colleague here at Cleveland.com, we get into whether the Browns should trade for Trent Williams and how Freddie Kitchen's play calling is doing. But we want to hit you first. Five quick headlines. Number one is that idea of a Trent Williams trade. You will enjoy the conversation that I have with Ellis because guess what he does? He sways me. The idea that one player could change the Browns was something I was skeptical about. But I do think it's very possible that the tackle situation is dire enough that one move could change everything. And so I think it's something worth thinking about. And Ellis makes a compelling case for that. Number two... I'm not sure why the Browns aren't targeting Odell Beckham in the red zone more. Um, they wound up throwing two balls in the red zone to Antonio Callaway and one to Demetrius Harris on Monday night. Um, of course, defenses are playing toward Odell Beckham, but I, me, Doug, would like to see the Browns' best player um, having the chance to be more impactful when it matters most. Freddie Kitchens talked again Monday on a conference call about the idea that the Browns aren't taking advantage of opportunities, and maybe they would... Those opportunities, the ones they really aren't taking advantage of are in the red zone, and maybe they would do it better if their best player was more involved. Because number three, I thought something that stuck out Monday night, and I might write about this still at Cleveland.com, is that the Browns, their two best players, their best players on both sides of the ball, Odell Beckham and Miles Garrett, did not really impact the game. And the best players for the 49ers on both sides of the ball, Nick Bosa on defense and George Kittle on offense, absolutely impacted the game. Nick Bosa changed the game. George Kittle had a huge touchdown catch and, and also I think had six or seven receptions, um, was an impact player in, in the run game as well. And obviously as a tight end, he's going to do th- different things than Odell Beckham. But you have to find a way to let your best players impact that. And the Niners ran it so well, it kind of took Miles Garrett out of the game. And so it's not really, I'm not blaming Miles Garrett for not having a Nick Bosa type of game, but the Niners had a plan to negate Miles Garrett that was far better than the Browns' plan to try to negate Nick Bosa. So in a game like that, neither quarterback played great. Jimmy Garoppolo did not play great. And there certainly were things going for the 49ers, but you know. I, I think part of what is hampering the Browns so far um, is the idea that it's not that they don't have good players, is that sometimes their good players aren't getting the chance to win games for them. And I do think Miles Garrett um, has had moments where he has helped change games, um, but he hasn't really had a game quite like Nick Bosa had last night where he almost won a game by himself. And again, they just have not been able to get the ball to Beckham the last couple games. And and the Niners, for instance, are pretty consistently able to find a way to let George Kittle, who might be the t- best tight end of the game, um, find a way to help him win. Help f- Find a way for him to help them win. Um, number four is I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not panicking. I'm I'm trying to be I'm I'm trying to figure out if my if being if I'm being unrealistic by being too realistic but I'm trying to take this as they've played some tough games if they're going to be good they have to beat some good teams and the the Ravens on the road that was a good win We'll see how good the the Ravens end up being. I think maybe the Niners are better um, than we thought they were going to be. And then you're talking about the Rams as a Super Bowl team and then the, and the Titans game the penalties just took them out of the game before they had a chance to do anything. So you know I think this is a Every game's a big game. Of course, this is a big game with Seattle. But if you don't want to be on a three-game losing streak, um, this is the game to win Sunday at home. And again, this is they've got to beat somebody good. At, and and I think um, this is their opportunity. But 
I was hard on Hugh Jackson, and, and I'm trying not to be like too soft on Freddie Kitchens or, or Baker Mayfield or what's going on right now, but I just I just think panic mode is the wrong place to be right now. And number five in the headlines is also I'm not going to panic. Still not going to panic. So let's get to our guests. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. Read me at cleveland.com. Uh, subscribe to iTunes. Uh, subscribe to Takes by the Lake on iTunes. Drop a review there if you'd so like. Make sure you listen to my other podcast, Buckeye Talk with Nathan Baird and Stephen Means. Subscribe to that. And try our tech stuff. Try the tech stuff. 14-day free trial. Texts directly to your phone about the teams you care about. Four bucks a month. I do the Buckeyes. Mary Kay does the Browns. Chris Fedor does the Cavs. That's just starting up. Make sure you try those. Go to cleveland.com slash OSU, cleveland.com slash Browns, and cleveland.com slash Cavs to find out more. Now let's start off with Dan Whalen, former quarterback, and then we'll move on to our friend Ellis Williams. We'll move them right into each other back to back, and then we'll wrap it up here on Takes by the Lake. Welcoming back to Takes by the Lake, our friend Dan Whalen. He is a person that I rely on when I have questions about quarterback things because he is a quarterback. Dan, let's remind the listeners about your bona fides uh, in your quarterback life. What you used to do? <laughs> well, is is a uh, is generous. I was a quarterback. I'm a little bit washed up these days, but uh, you know, started out at Willoughby South High School as a senior there, all state. Um, our team was ranked number two in the state at one point. Um, Four-year starter at Case Western Reserve locally. Uh, was lucky enough to have three undefeated seasons, make the playoffs three times, and uh, finish my career there as a first-team All-American as well. And then uh, had a little slice of uh, about a week or two with the Browns there in rookie camps. Uh, what year was that? 2010, 11, and then um, Steelers briefly, and then ended up with the the Gladiators first season playing arena ball, and then down in Orlando for a little bit, and then uh, hung it up. Dan, have I mentioned that I played high school golf? <laughs> I don't think we've talked about that, but uh, yeah. you know, golf is one thing I uh, I work on in my spare time. Yeah, you're also probably better at that than I am. Um, so listen, we love your we love your insight, love following you on Twitter, and uh, and I just told the people this as I as I introduced the show. Here's where I am coming from, Dan. At the moment, we're going to dig in on Baker Mayfield and everything else with the Browns offense. I'm yep. not freaking out. Like I'm not. I'm not. It's five games. It's three losses. I, I'm. I'm just like. I almost feel like I'm underanalyzing things because I'm just not going to allow myself to freak out over five games. But I'm open to the idea that perhaps maybe there are some underlying things that are worth freaking out about. Like is is a hey, it's a slow start. You know, they're getting to know each other. Teams have bad games. Is is that a reasonable approach here? Or when you watch the Browns on Monday night, are there fundamental things there that you're worried about? You know, I think there's a couple things. Uh, obviously, you're still gelling, right? You have a team that virtually didn't play any snaps together uh, in the preseason. And so week one, all intents and purposes, was, was the first time they'd all stepped foot on an actual competitive field together. And I know that, you know, generically, you've had a couple receivers play with Baker last year and a couple linemen, but the, it's the first time all 11 guys on both sides of the ball really get to go live and, and see what they're all about. So we really are in week five of this, not experiment, but in, in this process. I know that's a word we've heard a lot over the past number of years uh, that we're probably getting sick of. But, you know, you got a new head coach, unproven. Some people are saying that he might be in over his head that maybe he was the wrong guy. So I think time will still tell there. I like Freddie a lot. 
I think he has a, a way with dealing with players that uh, is rare. Uh, I still think he's working out some kinks in terms of his own game plans, the way he deals with his quarterback, the way he, you know, calls plays in uh, certain situations, be it fourth and long, be it inside the five, ten yard line. I think there's some things to to notice on that that can be definitely improved. But there's also like execution problems that I'm seeing uh, from the quarterback, but obviously the offensive line and um, our defense certainly hasn't played as advertised um, from the beginning of the season onward outside of a, you know, a couple quarters. So there, there's a number of things you could point to. It's still early. I'm with you. I'm not freaking out the way that I think uh, Clevelanders are sort of in default mode is, is, is always to just kind of pounce, right? When something's wrong, just, just the easiest thing to do is go for the low hanging fruit and, and kind of pull your hair out. But um, it's early. We're only one game back in the division, and we have a tiebreaker if we, you know, get back there up with the Ravens here in the next couple of weeks. So it's certainly too early to freak out, and the back half of our schedule certainly looks a lot easier than uh, in the front half. All right, I, I feel better. Thank you for reassuring me that <laughs> it's okay if I'm not freaking out. So let's talk about quarterback play where I'll say things that are very yeah. rudimentary and you say things that are smart. I think it looks like to me at times – that Baker is not throwing with great anticipation. It, it feels like a lot of times he's waiting for guys to sort of get out in their route and turn around and look at him, and then he's throwing the ball. And I feel like sometimes then that's when he's getting balls batted down. Sometimes it feels like he's waiting too long, and that's when he ends up either feeling actual pressure and escaping or imagining that he's feeling pressure and escaping. And he looked like he threw in such rhythm against Baltimore. I just feel like he's a, he's a nanosecond late on throws, maybe somewhat consistently, but that was me sitting watching this game on slow-mo and rewinding stuff last night. Do you see that at all among the millions of things we're going to talk about with Baker Mayfield? Is he just maybe not anticipating balls and getting rid of them just quite quickly enough? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. The the harder part, though, to figure out is why, right? I mean, it's easy to, to look at it and say, yeah, obviously he's late or he's inaccurate. I mean, he's among – he's like dead last in terms of the guys starting in this league right now who, you know, in, in completion percentage this season. And that's usually the reverse. His whole career has been known for his accuracy, right? He's had to be. He's five foot eleven, six foot on a good day. And he's, he was one of the most accurate passers in college football. And even last year as a rookie, well above average. So – it's it's something we're not accustomed to seeing from him, and it's trying to figure out and diagnose, well, why? What's the cause? And you see the old line be pretty shaky all across the board. I mean, uh, yeah, we we can point to um, our tackles or our, our issues at left tackle, but you know, yesterday on a play that I'm sure we're going to cover here in a minute at the goal line, you know, on the 10-yard line going in the interception, his right guard, right tackle got absolutely destroyed, and you know that that plays a role, I'm sure, in confidence over time. Uh, when you consistently have guys in your face. Now, what's that like on plays that there's a clean pocket is you're, you're feeling pressure, even if it's not there, you kind of got these ghosts. Um, it's kind of like when you're fighting with your brother and he hits you in it enough times, well, the time he doesn't hit you, you're still going to flinch, right? So yeah. it, it's, the, it's the same sort of thing, and um, I don't know how to work the kinks out of that, but I think the the quick fixes are probably to – obviously pound the ball with Nick Chubb, who's been an absolute monster, and, and we've shown that we can run block, um, and he creates his own opportunities. But the other is, is, you know, do some quick games, start off on three-step drops and hitches, slants, outs, those sorts of routes, and can build some rhythm for a guy. Another thing that I always like to do, and especially when you're playing a defense that, that's as good as the Niners, um, 
once a quarter, maybe once every three, four drives, you, you want to kind of pick up the pace, not go full two-minute offense, but you, you want to go no huddle, sort of, uh, you know, quick attack mode is what we used to call it, just to keep the defense on their feet. You want to limit your substitutions and really push and see if you can rattle off, you know, five, six plays in a row uh, in a very short period of time to, to build a little rhythm and get some momentum going. But I don't see any of that right now from the Browns. No, and it does feel like the times that they have done that in his career, Baker's very comfortable with that. It just does feel like that <clears throat> last night they didn't do as much stuff designed to get him going, but then let's go to that play that you brought up. Nevertheless, if Antonio mm-hmm. Callaway makes that catch, it's 14-10 with four minutes left mm-hmm. in the second quarter, and it's a game. Let's start right. with the throw, and then I don't know how much you freeze-framed that play it all and, and all the routes. I'm looking I, at it right now. Right I, have, speak. I have a second question. Let's start with Callaway. Obviously, sure. as you mentioned, Eric Cush and Chris Hubbard get pushed back and, and Baker is not able to step into that throw. Ideally, it's there, but it's not perfect. You know, obviously that's a catchable ball. That's a throw that everybody would say Antonio Callaway should make that grab. But I don't know. Like, can you put a percentage on it? Like, what percent of a good throw was that? Was that an 80% good throw? Was it a 60%? Was it a 95%? Because, you know, he had to go down and get it. It was a tiny little bit behind him, but it also hit him in the hands. I'm trying to figure out from your quarterback perspective, really, with all the things going on, how good of a throw was that? You know, it's, I'll answer it two ways. It's as good as a throw as you can be expected to make in the situation with. I mean, if you watch where the line of scrimmage was versus where Eric Cush ended up as Baker's releasing this ball, he gives up six yards. He gets absolutely bull rushed right into the pocket. Pocket collapses. Um, you know, Baker's only on his third step, so it's not like we're talking about him holding the ball in one of those scenarios. And there's two things happening on the defensive side, right? They're, they're playing a cloud coverage, which is essentially a zone. It's a zone coverage across the board except they have one guy shadowing Odell. So it's basically zone everywhere with an extra man covering Odell. So what's supposed to happen is Callaway is supposed to read that and throttle down and actually slow his route and sit in a hole. Um, He's not necessarily running full speed, just like a bat out of hell, which is what he does. And, you know, Baker hits him right on his back hip. It's not, it's not two feet behind him. It's not three feet up in the air. It's right on his back hip. So you got to catch the ball. It's not even like, oh, he should have caught it. Maybe 50%. No, he should have catch that ball. 100 times out of 100, he's uncovered. He's standing there all by himself. Yeah, he's moving a little bit, and Baker was slightly behind his center of gravity, but uh, that ball should be caught 10 times out of 10 uh, in the National Football League based on the fact that there was no one draped on him. There was no one really in his face. Uh, it was as clean of a opportunity to catch a ball in open field, you know, right there at the goal line as, as you'll ever find, but uh, certainly not ideal throwing conditions if you if you watch the play again. Baker can't bring his back hip forward, can't step into the throw. He kind of just has to has to pick and pop real fast and, and hope for the best. But um, if, if you watch it again, the best way to be accurate is to be able to finish throws and step into them. And, and I was always taught kind of the ball's going to go, then your shoulder and your, and your knee are going to go. And, and whichever direction those three things are going is, is, uh, is where the ball is going to line up and it's going to lead to your most accurate. Um, you know, throwing abilities. So it's just tough when you can't have that and uh, you got five guys blocking four and you still can't get a clean pocket. I will say you talked about Callaway sort of coming in like a bat out of hell on on that route. I thought Mm -hmm. when he made his cut on that route, I almost felt like there was like a whoop, 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 
like he almost was like a flailing his arm as like as he's turning. I thought it was a very imprecise route. Like I, I don't know. I feel like the Ohio State guys get a lot of credit for running some like really precise, crisp routes, and I, he just didn't feel crisp to me the whole play. And then he's loose with it at the end and trying to make the catch. He just he doesn't feel like a particularly crisp receiver to me right now. And I know he's rusty, but I think he's had a little bit of that in him the whole time. Am I making too big a deal? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, you have guys that are just absolute amazing route runners, right? And the Julian Edelman's and, and, you know, I would put Jarvis in that category. Uh, and then you have other guys who can just fly and Callaway's that guy, you know, you put him in a straight line, a lot like Josh Gordon was, he'll, he'll outrun anybody. Um, you ask him to run precise routes and, you know, drop his hips and cut it four yards. Well, he, he sometimes he's going to go with five. Sometimes he's going to go with three. He's that kind of guy. He's, he's not going to be as focused. And yeah, I'm watching the play a little bit. I'm watching a repeat here and he does. He just, he, he doesn't make a clean cut. I'm, now in this route, it's, that's probably not the most important thing, but still it's, it's something that in order to build rhythm so that, you know, him, he and his quarterback know where he's going to be on any given play. Um, it takes reps and it takes, you know, being precise, and I don't see that from him, and I don't think that's the guy you're ever really going to get that from. You kind of got to uh, take the good with the bad, and, and his outstanding athletic ability is, is the good, but his lack of focus and lack of uh, discipline and, and precision is probably the bad. All right, so you're looking at the play. Is Odell yeah. open? Is Odell open? It looks to me like he has inside position with the defender on his back a little bit, and if Baker rips that ball to Odell – in the middle of the field, the safety over top or whoever that guy is hanging out there is not going to be able to get there. I, I, it looks to me like there's a shot to Odell though. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I don't see it like glaringly obvious, obvious, excuse me. Um, you know, it would have to be even a better ball, but that said, you know, the pocket's cleaner on the left side. So Baker might've had a better throwing lane ability to step into that. But you know, this was exactly, at least on the front side to the three wide receiver side, it was exactly the route that they ran against the Rams on third down um, going in at, at the four-yard line where Baker threw it like near the goalpost um, when Jarvis was clean, wide open as the number two receiver underneath. It's the exact same thing. It's just a levels route. You kind of read the hash mark to the to the front side, and if that linebacker drops, you throw underneath. If he stays up, you throw you know the ball to the back. So um, the, re- the read's perfect. The route is open. The call is great. Uh, the execution just unfortunately didn't go our way. Okay, so then if I'm trying to imagine Odell into being open, I feel like, and and this is how good I am at my job, Dan, they had a conference call with Freddie Kitchens today, and like I couldn't figure out how to ask a question, and so I wanted to ask Freddie Kitchens this question, and I like couldn't get the question in, so I'm going to ask you instead. I'll probably get a better answer from you. There's I'll do my the, best, the, Freddie. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the three, there's three red zone throws, balls thrown into the end zone last night, One's to Harris, two are to Callaway. That throw you're mm-hmm. talking about, I think, against the Rams, he ends up going to the back back of the uh, edge of the end zone to Harris. Yeah. They did throw the little screen to Odell once they had the penalty last night, so it was like first and goal from like the 14, and so they threw it to Odell, but it wasn't a scoring play. It was like they're trying to get five or six yards. I, I, I feel like they've struggled in the red zone, but I feel like a lot of the time they're not throwing to their two best guys. And I understand that teams are going to focus on Odell there, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like, okay, Antonio Callaway dropped that, you know, turned that catch into an interception. He also, I thought, yeah. didn't go up like you would have liked him to go up on the other scramble ball 
um, yeah. in the red zone that Baker overthrew. Oh, he definitely bailed out, bailed out of that one. Why are they throwing to Antonio Callaway and Demetrius Harris in the red zone instead of Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry? Knowing, of course, that defenses are paying more attention to them, but shouldn't they be able to do something to try to get these guys open? And shouldn't Odell and Jarvis be first reads on some of the most important plays of the game? That's Freddie says we're not converting. And I would say, well, you're not converting because you're not trying to go to your best players. I know it's not that simple. But but what is it? Why isn't Odell getting targeted down there? Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, Coach Sam Ortigliano was a, a dear friend and mentor of mine through my college years, and he always used to say, you know, in, in times of crisis, you go to your best players. You design your plays to go to your best players, even if the defense knows it's coming. Um, and, you know, arguably that crisis word is, is a little loose. I'm using air quotes right now, but, you know, when you're – third and goal from the four in a, in a one score game, like that's a, that's kind of crises, right? So that's what he's referring to. But the, the reality is you've got two all pro wide receivers on the same side of the ball. I would probably start switching them up and putting them across, you know, on outside the formation because the defense can't overload, you know, to both of them. They can't double both of them and, and win because that would, that's when you really start to open things up for other guys. But on this particular play that we've been discussing, they're on the same side of the ball. So, if the defense wants to focus on both of them, it's, it's a lot easier than if they're uh, spread far apart. Now, there's this fine line between going to your best players and forcing it to your best players. And so at this point in time, you know, we've had a lot of red zone plays and not a lot of red zone success, at least on these, you know, drives where we've had three, four plays in a row from, from short yardage situations and we continue to throw it. Uh, my short answer, my cop-out answer is run the football. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, secondary to that is, if Odell is going to be blanketed and he has like everyone's saying how, how down he's been and, and how he's underperforming. And he, this isn't the guy we signed up for thus far through five games. Well, uh, the game when Jarvis went off last week, most of that was because Odell was clearing guys out and co- covering or taking two or three guys into coverage with him. And, and, and Rick Seals Jones had had a bunch of opportunities for the same reason. So even if he's not catching the ball, it's kind of like that nose tackle that, that takes two or three blockers, so that other guys can get the pass rush. It's the same sort of thing, but people obviously want to be drawn to statistics. They want to see big plays, and they want to see the star wide receiver make those plays. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, if Odell is going to be taken like that, you got to create opportunities where Jarvis is not going to be. And uh, at least yesterday we didn't see any of that. All right, so so fans can look for maybe trying to get them on opposite sides of the field in the red zone to try to make it at least a little more difficult for defenses to take both of them away. That's a good thing for fans that's, to look for. That's that's what I would do because then you can't yeah. run switches. You can't you can't like have three guys on two. You know, at least not your best players. And I would start working it that way. So Dan, the, the thing we we touched on it earlier, but this issue of Baker getting pressured and then also at times behaving as if there's pressure there, even maybe sometimes when there's not. And clearly there were at times last night, a lot of times last night. As a quarterback, if you don't have faith in your offensive line, how does that impact you? And do you think any of that is what's happening with Baker, that even on plays where Hubbard and Cush and Robinson aren't giving something up, he's still worried about it. Because I know you can look at the PFF grades of some of these guys, and they're not grading out as the very worst tackles in the league or anything. And you can look at them Mm -hmm. and say, you know what, Mm -hmm. they're being pretty average. But I don't know that there's not some effect that you can't put a number on that is somehow having a negative effect on the offense because maybe the quarterback doesn't trust them. Do you see maybe any of that happening? I see a little of that. Um, 
you know, it's tough. Like we, we are also in the midst of this stretch of games where it's like the nastiest five game stretch that I think anybody in the league could probably claim this year. Rams, Ravens, Niners, Seahawks, Patriots right in a row. Um, that, that's as tough as you're going to find. You got some pretty good defenses. I mean, maybe not statistically speaking, but uh, traditionally they're some of the most well-coached teams. Um, it's just going to be a little bit of, of a battle. And as Baker's learning to play with these guys and, you know, it, it, I still think we could probably go out and get, uh, you know, at least get our hat in the ring for Trent Williams, even though they say he's not, not available. I think that'd be a, a pretty worthwhile, at least conversation. And Dorsey likes making moves and he likes shaking and baking, but, you know, it's tough to say, like when you, when you're, when you don't have confidence in a group of guys, um, even though you want to, even though you, you know, you break the huddle, you go to the line with every intent and, and every, every bit of, of, uh, of confidence, I should say, to, that you're going to execute the play, but, but deep down, you know, that, uh, well, man, I don't know if, if uh, Greg Robinson can block, can, can block that guy, or I don't know if, if Kush is going to be able to hold the pocket. It's, it's like you start predetermining, you start anticipating, you start getting a little happy feet. You're trying to, you're double clutching throws because you're looking at the line of scrimmage instead of at the secondary. And it just becomes a really kind of snowballing effect. And five games in, it feels like that's what I'm seeing, but uh, it's really hard to point a finger at one thing. I mean, you got a new quarterback coach as well, uh, far less experienced than, than, than last year. Um, and, you know, you've heard quotes from Bob Wiley from you know, saying that, well, the quarterback coach was the one that, that was really coaching Baker up, not Freddie. And then so, you get all these 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 sound bites and, and then you see stuff on film and it's really hard to put your finger on one thing when it's really a, a complex machine of things. But uh, I certainly think that what you're talking about on the, on the O-line is one of them. We'll let you go here in a little bit, Dan. But Booger McFarland must have said five times last night, uh, the national question is, is Baker Makefield a one-read quarterback? And I just imagine, like, are people like in Boise, Idaho, walking down the street and saying to each other, hey, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm wondering if Baker Mayfield is a one-read quarterback. He made it seem like the whole country's talking about it. Do you think there's anything to that? Is there anything you're seeing in that that he's a guy who just if it's if the first read's not there, then he doesn't know what to do? No, not at all. I, I see a guy who, at this point in time, you know, after his first read, is feeling like the clock is is, is run out and he needs to escape or he needs to move, and he's not making it to his second and third read for that. Uh, he's shown in the past. I mean, last year. He, he was one of the most successful rookie quarterbacks that you know the league has seen in terms of his statistics, but also the team, don't forget, the year before with almost the same roster and a number of positions went you know, 0-16. And, and then a year later, he was responsible for winning you know, nearly, nearly all the wins that they've added. So it, it's, it's tough to say, oh, this guy's a one-trick one pony or a one-read guy. Uh, when you have a body of work that says otherwise, and then you go and you you institute a new playbook, you put you put in new players. Yeah, everybody thinks on paper they uh, they were Super Bowl contenders before the season started, but you know to say he's a one read guy is, is again it's taking the the easy road, it's taking the low hanging fruit, and it's just it's creating sound clips because you got to fill airtime, or you have a five hour radio show five days a week that you gotta you gotta have talking points for. But the reality is there's a lot of things going on. He knows what he's doing. He just needs to be better at it, and the line needs to improve. His receivers need to improve. Um, and Freddie, honestly, has to put his guys in a little bit better situations uh, more consistently thus far. I know uh, I had written about this before that second-year starting quarterbacks often, often struggle early, um, and yeah. sometimes yeah. they get it. 
Sometimes they get it figured out halfway through that second season. Sometimes it takes, you know, a third season. And, and I wrote about this. Uh, I know B- Baker brings extra attention on himself by being Baker. And it's the good and the bad of Baker. And that, you yeah. know, th- he's the guy that that is the perfect guy to stand up for Cleveland. But then also when it doesn't go well, there are going to be people who who take joy in his failures. And so that's that's if he's here for a decade, that's how it's going to be for a decade. So people have to get used to that. But I, I know Bill Barnwell from ESPN made a reference that, that Drew Brees struggled enough in his second year that he got benched for Doug Flutie. And then the Chargers drafted Phillip Rivers and traded Drew Brees. So like second year, sometimes guys take a little time. You've been talking about this is sort of you obviously are, are leading us toward a point in the final conclusion. Mm-hmm. Has anything you've seen this year in five games changed your mind about Baker Mayfield one way or the other? And and how would you describe where you think he's still going to get to as a quarterback in the NFL over a long period of time? What do you think he's still going to wind up being? No, I still I still think the same about the guy. I think he's talented. He's got confidence that you want, borderline arrogance. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is kind of one of those guys. He plays with arrogance, right? He's, he's not a quote-unquote arrogant person, but on the field he thinks he's the best and, and he's got an edge about him and I still see that Baker is one of the most accurate guys ever to play in the college level he showed that he can sustain that for a consistent period last year even as a rookie um, I don't know what this hiccup or this this funk is, that he's in uh, at the moment but um, I could see you know a, a new quarterback coach being brought in if, if, if that doesn't change over the next couple weeks I could see John Dorsey making some moves um, you know, on the O-line here in the next couple of weeks for the trade deadline, possibly. But, you know, my confidence in Baker hasn't wavered. Like, it can't – if you if you go up and down every week, like Browns fans and Browns media and national media uh, are clinging to at this point in time, you're going to you're gonna go nuts. Um, you got to let things ride out. And, and if we can get through the New England game at three and four, I think even though it's less than what people would have wanted when the season started, it's it's pretty damn good shape because after that, um, you can kind of take a deep breath, uh, regroup, and, and you've got a favorable schedule, at least the way it looks right now with the way the teams are performing. There certainly seems to be a 7-1 and one second half of the season sitting there for the taking if they get their stuff together. And I know people, you know, you get in trouble making assumptions about teams. But, <laughs> but the Raven, you know, again, it bothered me early on, and it still bothers me a little bit. It's like the Ravens looked great early on because they played the Cardinals and the Dolphins. And the Bills, right. I know the Bills might have a little something. Their defense is pretty good, but they also started off 3-0 and because they played the Jets, the Giants, and the Bengals. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, the Dolphins and the Cardinals and two against the Bengals and two against the dilapidated Steelers are all sitting there for the Browns. So so obviously, um, this makes me want to go look up the toughest five-game stretches on any team's schedule in the league because when you mention that yeah. in those terms – I had not. We knew this is tough. I had not thought about it that way. And I think I think you very well might be right, especially the way the Niners are playing that like, you know, okay, you're getting two out of getting the two Super Bowl teams in those five games. You know, the Ravens have a great, you know, are a winning franchise. You know, the Seahawks have Russell Wilson. But also now you've thrown in the fact that the Niners are undefeated. That is a pretty crazy five game stretch. Um, Dan Whalen, you can follow him on Twitter at D.W.H.A.L.E.N. five. Will you come back again sometime, Dan, and drop some more quarterback knowledge on us? Hey, you bet. Anytime you want, Doug. Appreciate when it. You, when you're a high school golfer, you have to reach out for help wherever you can get it. So, Dan, we really appreciate your insight. We really appreciate your time, and we certainly will talk to you soon again here on Takes by the Lake. Awesome. Thanks. Deep breath, everybody. Deep breath.
Back with Ellis Williams here on Takes by the Lake. He's our Cleveland.com colleague. We've had him on before. He just wrote a super interesting piece on Tuesday that I would encourage everybody to read because I know you're reading our coverage at Cleveland.com slash Browns. It's about the idea of trading for Trent Williams. And I know that's been floating out there, but when you make a coaching change like the Redskins just did, it's like, okay, the Redskins are up for change. And I know Bruce Allen is maybe saying some stuff, but they've got to at least be thinking about it. Ellis, you made your your case in your piece, and we'll go through that. But let me start with this question. How much do you think adding a tackle like Trent Williams would help the Browns right now? How would you describe how much of a difference he could make? Oh, I mean, the offense would go, it would look night and day. Um, adding a guy like Trent Williams uh, completely solidifies uh, the left side of your offensive line. You know, the problem with having a makeshift offensive line, sort of how the Browns have been doing things so far this year, um, is that talented offensive linemen just they just don't grow on trees. You need to be six five, six seven, you know, three hundred and twenty pounds to play this position. But then you need to have the footwork of, uh, say, Aaron Donald or with these smaller or Nick Bosa, like we saw last night, uh, and able to stay in front of these uh, athletes they have now rushing the passer. Not only do you need the feet, but you need the hand quickness and awareness to go with it. That is one heck of a concoction um, to put on someone who already is 6'5", 6'6", and carrying 300-plus pounds um, to also be that athletic. So simply put, uh, these guys don't walk uh, around. You know, you're not just going to find them walking the street. Uh, you need to pay premium dollar for these types of pass blockers. And a guy like Trent Williams is immense in the run game too. You know, he's graded out as one of the best tackles since entering the league. He's a seven-time All-Pro. Um, I really don't think there's a price too steep to, when you're talking about adding a guy like Trent Williams. You know, he's been a in Washington, they've been losing, which is why, you know, he is a name, but people don't uh, think of him, you know, similar to kind of like a Joe Thomas. I know he was so respected here. He never got that uh, national spotlight, if you will, just because Washington has been where they're at. And he's holding out right now, so he's not even playing, which isn't reminding people that uh, there is a premium left tackle uh, available, and I think the Browns need to do whatever it takes to land that guy. All right, so just logistically – if they got Trent Williams, would you still play Hubbard at right tackle and have Robinson now be your third tackle, be a backup tackle, or would you try to play Robinson at right tackle? Who is the bigger tackle problem at the moment for the Browns? Uh, that that's a tough question. Uh, you're really uh, picking, you know, splitting hairs at that point. Uh, I'm pretty sure Hubbard graded out just like one point below Robinson, uh, according to Pro Football Focus. One was like a 48. Point seven. The other was a forty-seven point seven. Um, Robinson has the longer tenure at tackle, obviously drafted as a tackle. Where Hubbard actually has a background playing guard. Uh, he may be more comfortable uh, moving that area. Not that the Browns necessarily need guard help, but look, offensive line is a position much like defensive line. You can't have too much depth at. Um, sure, everyone wants to talk about who are my starting five guys, and that is extremely important. But what is more important is the opportunity of bringing a guy like Williams in and then having a luxury of depth at, the, at that position because, look, the Browns have already had to deal with injuries at that position. They know that. 
and you have to assume injuries going forward. This is the NFL. These things happen. This is football. So, you know, I can't necessarily say which one would be better. My, my gut tells me uh, Robinson at right tackle makes the most sense, but you can't have too many talented linemen and a move like this would give the Browns that opportunity. So are you potentially proposing, though, that if you put Trent Williams at left tackle, you get better at left tackle? You move Greg Robinson to right tackle, you get better at right tackle? And could you put Hubbard at right guard and get better at right guard and improve three spots with one trade? Yeah, I I don't see why that couldn't happen. Um, Again, it'd be an embarrassment of riches at a position where, yes, I understand this O-line is getting drugged through the mud, especially after facing what people need to realize is probably the best defensive line in the NFL with the San Francisco 49ers. But you bring in a cream of the crop guy like Trent Williams, you are automatically making the line better, not just at left, like you said, but then you can improve right tackle and one of the guard spots just by a natural trickle-down effect and, again, increasing depth. Um, It's really a win-win. I know we we will probably get into a price tag that it would take to get Williams, um, but draft picks seem to be this thing that everyone loves and goes crazy about because it's hope, it's opportunity. Look, I'm from Minnesota. I understand. I I follow the, the Minnesota Timberwolves for years. I understand what it's like to have hope in your future draft picks. But you need guys available on Sundays to win you football games, and that's what having Williams and upgrading then, like you said, in a trickle-down way, right tackle in one of the guard spots to be able to do. That makes me more interested in this because my my inclination on this is no – they're trying to build something here for the long term, and and I'm just potentially reluctant to go down this road. But thinking about it as improving three spots and not just one makes me more – makes me more interested in this. Let, let let me ask you this, Ellis. How much are the tackles ruining <laughs> ruining this team right now? Like obviously, okay, you're you're replacing a, a worse player with a better player. That would would help at any spot on the field. But do you think it's possible that like you trade for Trent Williams and you said it would be night and day? Like would we stop asking questions about Freddie Kitchen's play calling and Baker Mayfield's pocket presence and his accuracy and the receivers drop and pat? Like, obviously, everybody still has to do their job. But would Trent Williams basically fix most of what needs to be fixed with this offense? Yeah, so what's interesting about that question is it's really twofold. Uh, not only does the Browns schedule get easier, which has been documented uh, and, you know, can be seen when comparing the win-loss records of their upcoming teams. Um, so naturally, the pass rushes are just going to get softer. They're going to get weaker as the schedule gets easier. But, then you're again, you're bringing in a guy who completely solidifies that spot. I, in my story, I plugged in a highlight video of Trent Williams, and I understand, oh, it's a highlight tape. I want to see his mistakes. Listen, the guy doesn't make mistakes. He <sighs> Pancake, pancake smaller defenders, gets out in run blocking and screen situations, and Baker Mayfield would – you can tell he is skittish and questioning his protection. It was obvious on Monday night. There would be times where Nick Bosa wasn't quite there yet, but he would begin to retreat and then go right into another pass rush. So adding a guy like Trent Williams then makes us have a fair way to assess – where Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield are. There essentially would be no more excuses. The running game's there, not to mention Kareem Hunt is nearing his return. 
Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry speak for themselves. You know, guys like Rashad Higgins getting healthy. Callaway, I'm sure no one wants to hear about, but he'll be heard from in the second half of this year, mark my words. This O-line is what's keeping fans from having a fair evaluation of their quarterback and first-year head coach. And I think bolstering it would then, everything would be on the table because the Browns need to be in a win-now mode. Listen, in today's NFL, you the Eagles set the precedent. You win with your rookie quarterback, and really the Seahawks before them with Russell Wilson. You win with your rookie quarterback on that rookie deal. It's a, the best bargain you can get in football. Mayfield's only looking at two and a half more years of that. So though I heard you say the Browns are trying to build something for the long haul here, how long is really the long haul in the NFL? Dorsey's made the, his, his point of bringing in talent. The Browns need to win now, and another adding guy like Trent Williams pushes those chips not all the way in, but as in as you can get considering how well he's done building the rest of this roster. You probably need to stop talking because you're convincing me. I, I, you are, <laughs> so I, I, and I have, we've talked about it a million times on this podcast. I have a hundred percent agreement of the rookie quarterback deal. Their window is now. And, and when I talk about building, it's like, well, you'd like to have a little window here while he's on his rookie deal. You're going to have to pay miles Garrett at some point, but, but truly this year, and next year might be the best opportunity just to try to take a real run at this. But I think the idea, yeah. I thought it was a, the, the compelling point of we cannot make a fair evaluation on the head coach and the quarterback because the tackles are so bad is a very compelling point because I think you would get some percent of, of panicky Browns fans, maybe the people who didn't really like the Baker Mayfield pick to begin with, who are acting like Baker Mayfield shouldn't be the quarterback here. And I think half the Browns fans right now would fire Freddie Kitchens. And the idea of like, of course, none of that is based in reality, but the idea of, listen, like, we, we have to get a fair understanding of whether or not we do need to think about other things, and they're not going to move away from Baker Mayfield anytime soon. But I think Freddie, first-year head coaches get fired. Freddie's not going to get fired in the middle of this year, but Steve Wilkes got fired after one year. Rob Chudzinski in Cleveland got fired after one year. The idea of are you going to get a bad read on Freddie because the tackles stink, boy, I had not thought of that. But but it sounds Ellis, you truly believe uh, coming into this year and before you got hired here, we talked about this a lot in the off season. Like we knew the line wasn't going to be good, but like how did how, how good do they have to be for the rest of it to work? And it's like if they can be average, we kind of decided if they can be average, they'll be okay. And it feels like they've been below average so far. But you think the line has been bad enough that it's just really fundamentally thrown off everything they're trying to do. Yeah, it just it goes back to what I said about Baker not trusting his protection. You can tell he's been skittish, and bringing in a guy like Williams then eliminates any excuse for him having that that jumpiness in the in the pocket. Some of these uh, seven yard throws are turning into thirteen, fourteen, fifteen yard attempts because he's so far back in the pocket. Now I want to go uh, touch on something you said about uh, Baker's here for the long haul and NFL's first-year head coaches can get fired. Of course they can, but I would say this, and it's going to sound obvious when I say it, but people need to think of the big picture here. A, a simple key to success is stability. Freddie Kitchens staying here because, or at least getting a fair evaluation because the offensive line has been shored up, then gives Baker Mayfield another year with, 
Freddie Kitchens and this system. The last thing you want, look at um, a guy like Alex Smith in Washington. Um, even Derek Carr kind of went through it uh, with Oakland right now. You you can't keep changing the, the, the scheme and the play callers on these young um, quarterbacks. It's, it's, it's simply just unfair. So really you're compounding two problems there. If you can't get a fair evaluation on Coach Kitchens, he's then removed, and now we're looking at Baker Mayfield. Well, what is he? Well, how can we ever get a real fair assessment on Baker when the systems keep changing? So you're running into a dangerous way of compounding your problem here which I think can all be solved by sharing up the left tackle and getting one of the premier ones that are available. You've done it. I'm in. I can't believe That's like, what I, I, like to hear. I, I, I I'm very, even though I'm a hundred percent in on the window, the idea of like, well, they have JC Treader, they have Joe Schobert, they have Demarius Randall this off season. They, they have Rashard Higgins. They have guys they have to take care of. They're already going to have hard decisions to make. Now you throw Trent Williams in the mix. If you want to keep him around, you're going to have to give him a boatload of money. It's going to weaken you somewhere else. But the idea of like, man, you are blowing a chance for your team to even have an opportunity to show who they are basically because of, of, of two positions or maybe three positions on the offensive line, but that one move could maybe (laughs) why trading for Trent Williams could save the Browns. I mean, like it's, 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 (laughs) it's like the way you're talking, that's what you're making me feel like. And, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound crazy to me. So now that you've convinced me that this would be a good thing to happen, why don't you tell the people who exactly you would like to trade for Trent Williams? Because I read your story and I would like to remind you, he is a fine young man from the Cleveland area who went to Ohio State. So go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ellis. Go ahead. Who you are dispatching in the effort to get Trent Williams. Yeah. Yeah. No, when when typing the story out, I, I had a feeling it wouldn't be received well. But listen, we need to deal in reality with this. And the Lurming Tunsil trade, um, Miami tackle going from the Dolphins to the Texans really made this left tackle market confusing. Uh, in my story, I detail Tunsil 25, Williams 25 years old, Tunsil 30, sorry, Tunsil 25, Williams 31 years of age, which is a obviously a good age gap there. But Tunsil was traded for two first-round picks and a second. That, and it was regarded as a blockbuster trade, um, you know, as the highest-paid contracts, whether it's quarterback, wide receiver, whatever, uh, reset the market, as they say, when it comes to contracts. Unfortunately, for teams needing left tackles, like the Browns, potentially, this trade reset the trade market for tackle. Now, if this Tunsil trade had not happened, I very well could uh, could see Williams going for a uh, second and a fifth and maybe um, you know, someone on the the D line, or you know, a, a little a player, a, a shoe in, but really, it's more about these picks. Ooh. You know who they could trade? You know who they could trade? I have a, I have a good idea. In the old trade, go for it, Austin Corbett. Oh, but the problem okay. with Austin Corbett is that nobody wants him because he's not good at football. Shoot. Other than that. <laughs> I was going to try and let you sell that one. I was going to try and let you sell that. I one. can't. I can't sell it. These going to get cut. I can't sell it. So go ahead with your real trade. Right. So I'm really elongating this because I'm scared to say it, but it's going to cost a first and a guy like Denzel Ward to move Williams because 
the tonsil trade reset the market. And eventually, once a team, like the Texans already did, realizes, holy crap, we need to win now. We need to shore up this line. We need to protect our investment. Because I, I need to remind you of one more thing. The Andrew Luck retirement is also was a complete indictment on the Indianapolis Colts' ability to protect their asset. So now not only are executives, coaches thinking, okay, we need to uh, win now, we also can't have our franchise quarterback retiring before he's 30. So why, two- why, why Baker Mayfield will retire if the Browns don't trade for Trent Williams? I'm telling <laughs> you, man, your headline opportunity is here. You should write 10 more stories about this. Oh man, I'm taking notes. We'll come back to this, but really, it, it's just—it's unfortunately, it's bad. I'll wrap this up. It, it's bad timing for the Browns to hit the trade market. Um, first, uh, I'm not sure how much leverage they had, considering Washington's pretty hell bent on not even trading Williams until January, which naturally drives his price up. Then, as I already detailed, with the Tunsil trade, uh, and then something a little minor but still important with Andrew Luck retiring has just m- made the importance of premium offensive line play uh, an utmost importance amongst these front offices. So that is why I think the price has to be high and potentially an overpay, much like the Texans overpaid for Tunsil. It's got to be a first. It's likely got to be someone with some name and some, some potential like Denzel Ward. And then we're looking at, you know, maybe third, fourth round pick too. And I know that sounds steep, but if it, the results, happen that I think you we'd see from this offensive line being shored up, uh, I don't think anyone in Cleveland would be complaining. Why the Browns will leave Cleveland again if they don't trade for Trent Williams by Ellis Williams? Oh, one headline at a time. <laughs> so you got to figure out what's going to really reel in the people. I, I'm, I'm fascinated right. by this, and so I think you have made a very compelling case. So I, I – I, I'm glad we hit on that that hard because uh, it's 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 obvious, right? I mean, Ellis, it doesn't take much to say, hey, the tackles have been bad. But like what it means, what you can do about it, what the true effects of that are, are what matter. And so I'm glad we've covered that, which will allow us to briefly move on to another topic that, again, might be solved if they trade for Trent Williams. Uh, you every time the Browns play poorly and, uh, you know, you can find stories talking about the play calling issues. Obviously, it seemed like they fixed some play calling things against Baltimore in week four. But then it feels like, OK, the play calling problems, you know, reared their head again against San Francisco. Do you feel like once again, they were running too many plays where there were too many downfield routes and not enough short, quick throws for Baker Mayfield. It obvious was obvious he did not get in a rhythm the way he did against Baltimore. How much was the play calling um, responsible for that? Or, or do you think Freddie called an okay game and a lot of other stuff went wrong? Yeah, so I'm glad we're talking about this. Um, actually gives me an opportunity to tease something that should be up in the morning. I'm looking at uh, the first half of the, the Browns game because, let's be honest, this game was – uh, over the moment Antonio Callaway dropped that end zone pass from Baker Mayfield, um, setting up another Niners score. And then we go into the third quarter and the Niners score on their opening drive. So this game was over the moment uh, Callaway dropped that pass. So in those first six drives that the Browns had, um, and I know I'm going to keep sounding like a Freddie apologist here, but he called plays that worked Guys were open, and once again, it comes down to simple miscues that are hurting Cleveland and ultimately triggering a snowball effect 
that ended up with a score that says 31-3 with not even 200 yards of total offense. Um, we can just start on the opening drive. Um, the only thing that went correctly was the reverse pass from Beckham to Landry. Um, after that, uh, you know, we, we, you can think of the, the Ricky Seals catch that was a catch and then not a catch. That it was, it was, it was before that because what the Browns couldn't do was simply execute on simple plays like the Beckham to May or Mayfield to Beckham middle screen, simple pass. Um, sure, okay, maybe Mayfield didn't put it in the 100% perfect spot for Beckham, but it hits him in the hands and res- results in a drop. Um, after that, a false start pushes uh, the Browns from second and 10 to second and 15. And whether you're watching at home or you've played the game on the field, uh, your third down call is going to change a lot going from second and 15 to now pro- likely a third and long from a second and 10 to probably a third and manageable. It's just a very defleeting penalty, those false starts, especially on second down. So that's just an example on the opening drive there. There's some momentum and then these simple miscues. One false start really changed that entire uh, sequence on the second drive. We're going to go to the Richard Sherman interception one play one miscue for whatever reason and now this is not a miscue on the field this goes to the coaching this coaching staff had nick bosa one-on-one with demetrius harris that's a tight end on one of the best pass rushers in the league and that wasn't the only time it happened in this game and it it happened this early and cost the browns a possession a turnover uh yet uh, two more other times in the first half the Browns had a tight end blocking Bosa, which is just a complete mismatch. Um, and then I've alluded to it, but we can go to the drive that really ended the game. Um, there were two great plays. First, the Nick Chubb 37-yard run on a track. Right. Oh. Be- yep. Beautiful. It was a beautiful, beautiful play design. Beckham in the backfield uh, already had pitched it to him once, so you you established that motion, and you hit. Nick Chubb on a quick trap for 37 yards, following that up with a screen to Chubb, and they said it on the ESPN broadcast, here come the Browns. Now, I want to go back right before that trap play. The Browns had to call a timeout because Antonio Callaway could not get lined up properly. Okay. (laughs) Callaway was clearly foreshadowing the mishaps that were going to keep coming to him and end up ending this game for the Browns. I can't for the life of me figure out why Freddie Kitchen still had him on the field. I cannot defend that. But where I'm going with this is the 37-yard run, great design. The screen, great design. And then we're looking at a third down where Freddie Kitchens puts Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry on the left side of the field. Thus, all the attention is going to be on the left side. Baker knows this. Freddie knows this. And Callaway opens up underneath and could fall and do three rolls into the end zone before being touched. Instead, the ball's just a little off, another miscue, and obviously the blatant drop, another miscue, and this game's over. So what I'm trying to say here is Freddie has put these guys in positions to make simple plays. You know, they, they don't need to be game-busting home run plays. It's, it's, a, it's a quick screen to Beckham. It's missing him on the 12-yard out. It's Callaway drops um, that unfortunately take away from his moments of real brilliance, like the 37-yard trap play to Nick Chubb. 
Um, 14-10 looks a lot different than 21-3, and, and then eventually the, the uh, 28-3 when George Kittle scores there in the third. So I think it was a snowball effect. I can't sit here and bash on Kitchens for his play calling. When I'm watching the tape and these things are working, it's just small miscues, small mishaps that continue to shoot the Browns in the foot. They're really the, the, te- the team in the league that's shooting themselves in the foot the most right now, and, and it it's, makes it tough to watch. Uh, Dan Whalen, our previous guest, was talking about that that Callaway thing too, just like sort of an inexcusable thing. And, and really, Ellis, it, it is I, – I hate the word narrative because like narrative to me implies that like there's some kind of preplanned thing. It's just like people talk about certain things. I get it. But like if they had scored on that drive, I think people would have been like, wow, that was a great drive. Right, because the, yep. there were some really well designed things in there, and they moved the ball well. And then, if they convert in the red zone, it's fourteen ten, and and people would say, "Wow, they really got back in the game." And Freddie showed something, but it's like because Antonio Callaway can't hold onto the ball, you kind of forget about the drive as a whole. So, uh, exactly. I, I don't, I don't listen, Ellis. Here's the deal: you're just going to come on here and tell me what to think from now on. This is the plan. <laughs> you come on. You played college football. I just had Dan Whalen. He played college football. As I mentioned to Dan, I played high school golf. So I'm just going to let the football guys come on and tell me what to think. And I agree with this. I am cognizant of like trying not to be a Freddie apologist because I was up Hugh Jackson's butt all the time. And so like I, I want to make sure that I'm holding the head coach of the Cleveland Browns to the same standard. Freddie needs to be better, but I don't think like Freddie is like undermining the team for his own gain, which is what I felt Hugh was doing at times. It goes beyond like not calling the right plays or whatever. So I do think Freddie is is not doing a great job, but he's doing a better job than I think a lot of people are are talking about, that there is this perception of like he's over his head, he's overwhelmed, he's terrible, and, and I don't think that's what it is. I think he could be better, but I think they're blowing a lot of opportunities. So last thing before we go, you were a college football receiver. The initial – Red zone. Which one was it? I think it was the one before that, the one that they got the field goal. Baker yeah. had to scramble around a little bit and and like kind of fired like a bullet to the end zone high to Callaway. Mm-hmm. That Callaway certainly did not go up and make an aggressive play on the ball. Brian Baldinger, who does a great job on his Twitter breakdowns, um, did a did something with it today, and I and I retweeted it, and he was he you know retweeted that, and we're sort of talking back and forth a little bit that. You know, it certainly looked like, and I didn't want to call it out last night on one look off TV as a high school golfer, but, you know, Brian Baldinger was talking about it. I didn't think he made a great effort for the ball. It maybe looked like some people have said maybe he thought there was a receiver behind him that it was actually intended for. I'm not sure what chance he really had to actually make that catch. It probably was a little coming a little bit too hot, was a little bit too high. And yes, there were three defenders around him. But did you think that Antonio Callaway should have made a, a better effort on that ball? Or was that kind of a thing? Well, you know, sometimes you get caught in between as a receiver and you're not sure if it's for you and maybe you don't want to get your ribs broken by a safety. So stuff happens. What did you think of that play? Yeah, I, I, I don't think we should make too much of that. Look, that ball is coming on an absolute rope. And to what you said earlier, um, first of all, Callaway has sat the first four games. More reason he should not have been out there because clearly – if he's wondering if someone's behind him, he's not confident in his scramble rules or whatever sort of breakdown uh, code that the Browns have installed, which I'm, I'm very confident the Browns do. Everyone um, from, you know, the better high school offenses 
up have simple scramble rules. We've most of all of us have heard of those. So my guess is, first of all, Cowboys is not confident in where he should be at the field when Baker breaks down like that, because again, it's first game back. And second, that's a very difficult catch to make. I would almost challenge Mayfield there, as I said earlier, why is he 13, 14 yards behind the line of scrimmage making such a throw? This, again, probably narratively comes back to how our conversation started with the offensive line, but I just think Mayfield is making things a little harder on him at times, like that throw, for example, due to the lack of trust he has in the offensive line. So, But to bring it back to Callaway, no, I – Look, he had plenty of mistakes before that. I'll detail in my piece for the morning, but that's not one that I, I can put on him, no. I will yield to your expertise, Ellis Williams. All right, so make sure uh, you guys are reading Ellis. He's been just doing some great stuff for us uh, on our Browns coverage. In addition to Scott Pasco, Dan Lobby, and Mary Kay Cabot, we have the best uh, Browns coverage in the universe right now. We thought we – I still think you guys are we're – so we're, we're covering a playoff team. We're covering a playoff team. It's it, – it's, it's ugly right now, but the division is there for the taking. The second half schedule is there for the taking. Um, after the Trent Williams trade that they make based on Ellis's recommendation, everything will be fixed and everything will be wonderful in Browns land. But I still, right, it, Ellis, like it, uh, and I asked Dan Whalen this question, like, I'm not in panic mode. Are, are, should people be in panic mode about this team? Or like, would you try to talk them off the ledge? I'm glad you brought that up. What is, what is everyone freaking out about? They just, welcome. Welcome to Cleveland, Ellis. Welcome to Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I guess I, I still got some stuff to figure out here. But, um, you know, just two weeks ago, the Browns put 40 on uh, the former division champion on the road. Um, okay, sure, they go into San Francisco, a, a West Coast game against an NFC opponent. Now, if the Browns were in the NFC West with, you know, the Niners, the Seahawks, and the Rams, sure, they probably should be a little worried. Uh, but this is a two-division race, as you alluded to. Uh, the Steelers are down to their third quarterback and Cincinnati's playing for the first pick in the draft. And considering the Browns already have the tiebreaker, I don't know what the big fuss is about. The Trent Williams thing is not an overreaction as much as it is an opportunity for Cleveland to completely solidify themselves, not only in the division, but in the AFC. So listen, I'll probably, uh, no one's going to listen to this, my advice here, but everyone needs to, just chill a little bit. This this thing's going to be just fine. Alice, I'll have you know this is a very influential podcast. Your voice carries a long way when you're on takes by the like, baby. So um, Book of Ellis on Twitter. Make sure you're following Ellis there. Make sure you're checking out his stories at Cleveland.com, and we will continue to have him be a regular part of Takes by the Lake. Ellis, I appreciate your time, and I will hopefully I, – I hope to make it up to Cleveland midweek sometime this week. The Ohio State's on a bye, but I certainly will be there uh, Sunday for the Seahawks game. So I'll see you soon, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, you know, one of these weeks we'll, we'll find something to disagree on. I know we'll go at it, but as of right now, I've, I've been having a blast doing this. So thanks again. No, no, you're too, you're too persuasive. I usually fight with people. <laughs> it's my inclination to fight with people, but, um, I don't know. You're winning me over so far. So, well, you know what? I'll just be a stubborn old man at some point and just disagree with you no matter what. So you can get the full Doug effect. Cause I really can be quite a jerk sometimes. And I think you need to experience that. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Or I'll just say something really, really stupid next time and we can go from there. All right. Sounds like a plan. He's Ellis Williams. <laughs> Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. 
And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Thanks to Dan Whalen. Thanks to Ellis Williams. Thanks to you guys for listening. Make sure you try the Project Text 14-day free trial. Read me at cleveland.com slash OSU or slash Browns. Uh, we'll take the iTunes review if you care to drop one. And uh, get subscribed. Get subscribed wherever you enjoy podcasts. Make sure you're getting Takes by the Lake every week. We try to bring it to you every Tuesday. Sometimes it's pretty late on Tuesday, but we try to make it in on Tuesday. And then on our Buckeye Talk podcast every Wednesday. Also make sure you're listening to Orange and Brown Talk. That is our other primary Browns. Those are the beat writers. They really know what's going on. That's Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, and Scott Patsko coming to you uh, whenever they need to come to you. So that's for this uh, this episode of Takes by the Lake. We appreciate you guys listening, and we will talk to you next time.